Today, we are fortunate to welcome psychiatrist Dr. Elisa Newman to the podcast. We'll let her explain who she is and her background in the episode, but we were excited to have her come on and have this in-depth conversation about medication and the emotional impact of a diagnosis. She also did a deep dive on what she has coined thoughtful parenting and shares anecdotes from her practice and her life. Don't forget to listen until the end of the episode to hear our thoughts and key takeaways. So, Smarties, let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 67 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. I'm Rachel Kapp. And welcome. We're excited today to have Dr. Elisa Newman, who is a psychiatrist in Beverly Hills, part of our local professional series, with us. Uh, welcome, Dr. Newman. Hello to the two of you, and hello to all those smarties out there. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Yes. I'm thrilled. I've known Dr. Newman for quite a few years, and I always knew that I wanted to have her come on the podcast because she played an important role in my life at one time. So I am really glad to now be an educational therapist and have you on as a professional and just know that you're important to me. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Stephanie. I think one of the joys of being a professional working in this kind of field is you learn, I learn when I'm working with other people. So it's a mutual learning experience. So it really is. And mm -hmm. so great. Right. And I learn from the families I work with and the kids that I work with as well. Yeah, so absolutely. That's the excitement of being a mental health professional. As long as you're open to listening to what other people have to say to you, you can help guide them and they can help guide you as well. Absolutely. And you absolutely did in my life. So I appreciate that. You're welcome. So excited to have the first psychiatrist on the podcast. And tell us a little bit about who you work with and what you do. Okay. So I'll tell you about my own personal evolution into the field of child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry. When I was a medical student, I knew that I wanted to do something in the field of children I wasn't sure exactly which direction I wanted to go. So I did a experience, an elective at UCLA in child and adolescent psychiatry and did that for six weeks. And then I also went to the University of Pittsburgh and was awarded a fellowship for another six weeks working with Keith Connors. And if anybody has done work with the Connors rating scale, it was really mm -hmm. quite a privilege to be able to work with him and his colleagues. And at the time he was doing research in the Feingold diet, which if you go back in time, the Feingold diet was the original allergy-based, is this what causes ADD, is food additives and mm. food coloring. And in the world of pediatrics, there was a lot of research that went on with that. So that was one of my beginning parts in the world of psychiatry, was working with Keith Connors and also at UCLA. But I really loved children's health. So I decided I was going to complete my internship in pediatrics at Children's Hospital. And I'd already been granted a spot in the adult psychiatry program at UCLA. I went back to them after my only six months as an intern and said, I hate being an intern. It's a very stressful experience. But I still want to feel like I have my grounding in physical medicine. So I want to stay another year at Children's. So I did a second year at Children's. Went back the next year and said, you know, I think I want to be board certified in pediatrics. I really want to feel like I know the physical health of children. So I completed, and they said, fine, fine, we'll save your spot. So I did three years of pediatrics, took my boards in pediatrics, and then went to psychiatry at UCLA in their adult psychiatry program. Did that for two years, did another year kind of in between, and I'll explain that, and then went and did another two years in a child psychiatry fellowship program took my boards in ped psychiatry and child psychiatry. So I warned my husband, you never know, I may decide to go back and do radiology. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point he said, had enough's enough. We have five children and my first child was born the year that I was doing my adult psychiatry. And then I had four children throughout the next 
well, total 10 years. So I'm a parent of five. My oldest is 36 now, youngest is 26, with one grandchild, which is very fun to watch. And they're coming today, so I'm very excited. Oh, good. (laughs) So a four-year-old. So I've been in this field now for about over 30 years, both in pediatrics, and I still did some teaching at UCLA in the field of pediatrics in the walk-in clinic up until about three years ago. And I still teach at UCLA in psychiatry. So I have a fellow every year that I teach how to be a child psychiatrist. I will occasionally come and do lectures at UCLA and did one this last year in adolescent development. And then sometimes my fellows grace me by saying, continue to help us and let us continue to work with you over the years as they've gone into practice. I've also been privileged to have now multiple generations of families. So I have two families that I worked with their parents when they were kids. Oh, wow. And now their kids. <laughs> it's a wonderful longitudinal experience. Wow, that's cool. My mom has that. My mom's a teacher, and she has students in her class whose parents were her students when they were like second graders. And now she's teaching their second graders. It's benefit of being in the same city and yeah. in the same field for a long period of time. That's right. That's right. Well, when my kids were little and they were misbehaving, I'd say to them, could you watch where you're misbehaving because you're going to ruin my credibility? Exactly. <laughs> and then I realized with the help of a very wise mentor that actually I was going to model for other parents what it's like to be a parent. Yeah. Because your kids don't go by a script. Yeah. They don't choose where they misbehave. No. <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> We did an episode that was called You're Not Alone because so often parents come to us and they've just gotten a diagnosis and it's been a long road of them feeling like something's wrong, so they can't understand what's happening with their child and the teachers are saying, oh, they're fine, they'll catch up, he's just a boy or whatever. And Sometimes the diagnosis can feel just so heavy and just life altering and just like the crush of their dreams. And sometimes it's also the opposite and it's feeling very freeing that they know that there's something specific that's going on that they can help with. And I just wanted to hear from you sort of what issues you've seen in your 30 years and the feelings around it and how you sort of help the parents. Because I know you do a lot of parent coaching and sort of how you help them when those feelings come up. For the parent. For the parent. So I'm going to go back to my being a parent and my youngest daughter when she was around six and she was the fifth of my five kids. And I really thought she had inattentive ADD with maybe some hyperactivity and impulsivity. But she was just different than my other four kids. And mm. I said to her teacher, you know, do you think she's got some problems with her focus and attention? And this was based on when my daughter came home and I said, what's your homework? She said, I don't know. I never pay attention to what the teacher says about my homework. (laughs) To me, no, I think she's fine. But, you know, I do have to have somebody sit with her for standardized tests. And occasionally she'll go under her chair, under her desk. So I said, okay, I think I know what this is. And I contacted one of my educational psychology colleagues and said, would you test her? Let me see what's going on. And when this woman who is lovely, and I've known her for years and trusted her judgment, said to me, yes, I do think she has ADD. And I called one of my colleagues and I was in tears on the phone. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to be on the side of the pen that's writing the prescription than to be on the side of the prescription pad that's filling the prescription. Mm -hmm. So you can't help as a parent but to have those kinds of feelings. You don't want your kids to have something that's going to be difficult for them. Yes. Even though I knew it, I have lots of perspective and knew how beneficial medication was. I didn't really want to have to go down that road. So I tell that to parents. Yeah, I sympathize. Mm -hmm. One of my other sons was diagnosed with ADD when he was in middle school. And I said to the psychiatrist that I brought him to, I don't think he's got that. And he was right. My son did, but it was a more inattentive ADD. And he was Mm -hmm. much better able to compensate, even though I know that middle school is the next stage where 
kids who have ADD show up because they're asking to have a lot more executive functioning in their, in their schoolwork. He was right. So, you know, having two kids, two different presentations of ADD, and then my other kids are assortments of other things as people are going to be assortments of other things. So mm-hmm. living it, watching it, teaching it, yeah, I've got a lot of perspective and a lot of empathy for parents. What do you suggest to them when they're having those feelings of what do I do now? Well, I try to empathize and sympathize and tell them my own, if it seems appropriate, about how I know what it's like to have to do that for your kids. But I also will tell them that my youngest daughter, when she was in about fifth grade, said to me, and I'll change the names to protect the confidentiality of those that she was telling me about. But she said, Mom, look at, and I'll call her Ruby. That's not her name. I think Ruby's got the same trouble I do. Why doesn't her mom give her medication to help her? I was around fifth grade. When that child hit about eighth grade, yes, that child was starting to have medication that parents would call me. What do you think? So the perspective of you have an ability to help your child in a way that really can be profound for your child. I saw a little guy this morning that I've seen for a few years, and he's now taking his own medication. Now, that's unusual for a sixth grader. Typically, they don't remember. But he said, why wouldn't I take it? It's there to help me, and it helps me. Mm-hmm. So because I have all of those faces and stories that also go through my head when I'm seeing a new family, I'm feeling more comforting and more able to tell them, look, I think you can really help your youngster. And if it doesn't work, you just stop it. So there's nothing that's going to be deleterious in a negative way that we can't change. There's also some wonderful research that I was given by Lori Humphrey, who is another educational psychologist psychologist in town. Who I know well, yes. Yes, yes. So Lori shared with me some studies that she was showing parents when she does feedback about how the white matter in the brain really does change in quantity with being able to give your child medication. Children who take medication, their white matter, which is the circuitry in the brain, improves to a level that kids that don't have ADD have if they're taking medication. Hmm. So showing parents that graph It was like, okay, you don't want to have to do this, but there's a lot of things in parenting you don't want to have to do. This is something that can be really helpful. I think that's so important to know, and what a great visual of what it really means. I'd like that graph, please. Can we (laughs) get that picture, please? Oh, I'll send it to you. After you get finished, I can send it to you from Lori had sent to me. Oh, yeah, that's great. And I think the other thing that comes up often is that parents who decide to medicate their child are often going to pediatricians and not coming to a child psychiatrist like yourself. And I know Rachel also feels the same way, but we're very often wanting them to go to somebody that's specialized. Go to the expert. Exactly. And what would be the reasons that you would tell parents listening to you right now why you should go to somebody such as yourself versus their regular pediatrician? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because remember, I'm triple boarded. So I'm I'm a pediatrician and a psychiatrist (laughs) as well. So I understand at least when I was in pediatrics, what the training was in behavioral pediatrics and what the training is in child psychiatry. Pediatricians are so busy trying to take care of everything. And in internship and residency, at least as a pediatrician, what was I most concerned about? with making sure children stayed alive. Mm -hmm. So how to run an ICU code, what to do when a child stops breathing, how to manage the illnesses that are catastrophic. That was my main focus because, you know, you don't want a child to die on your watch. Absolutely. Behavioral pediatrics did not get the same emphasis, nor was it feeling as important because it didn't have the same disastrous consequences. So at least at the time that I trained, I didn't feel that behavioral pediatrics got as much exposure. But where do pediatricians out in the field work and what are they trained to do? Well, about 75% of kids with ADD are going to do fine with any medication. One third does better with one brand or, you know, the methylphenidate brand. One third does better with the dextroamphetamine brand. This is the Ritalin versus the Vyvanse. But two thirds are going to do fine with whatever. 
So pediatricians are capable of handling, I think, the straightforward garden variety ADD. Mm-hmm. What they can't do is the more complicated cases. When things don't go as well, if they've already tried one and it doesn't work, the side effect, that's really where I think your specialist comes in. You know, it's like if you've got a ear infection, you go to the pediatrician, you have a ear infection. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. If it doesn't clear up, that's when you look at going to an ENT. That's a good point. And with insurances, because pediatricians are going to get covered, child psychiatrists are generally not. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive and costly for parents. I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. So we all have our place. It's where things aren't going well, or there's the ADD plus kids that I think a child psychiatrist is better able to handle. And I call the ADD plus kids about a third of kids who have ADD have some kind of anxiety disorder. Yes. Which is pretty high. And ADD is about six to nine percent of the population. So third of those are going to have an anxiety disorder. And it isn't just because they're anxious about having ADD. They just tend to come along in the same group of kids. The kids who have tics, T-I-C-S, not the head tics, you know, Lyme disease, but children who have tics, motor movements. Mm -hmm. The motor movement kids tend to have attentional issues, not always. They often have learning disabilities and they often have OCD. So it's a quartet that likes to walk around with kids who have tics. So the tic kids are a little more complicated. So if you've got a child, Smarties, who has tics, that may be where you'd want a consultation with a child adolescent psychiatrist. Hmm. But typically, pediatricians are skilled. They care. They're professionals. They know what's going on in the community. So I don't think that's the wrong place to start. I love that you put that out there like that. You know, most of the time I think in our practices, we have some kids that have, you know, the garden variety, but a lot of the kids are the ADD plus, as you call them. Absolutely. So the ones that are the garden variety are the ones that we tend to be able to graduate out earlier and tend to listen to what we say to do and they actually do it and whatnot. But a good majority of the kids that come in my practice, and I know Rachel's as well, are the kids that are really... It's complicated. Yeah, there's a lot of different levels of things going on. So I appreciate you saying that. And it's okay to start with a pediatrician if it's definitely not working. Or I've had parents where they think it's working or they're not 100% sure it's working and they haven't even thought to ask or to try something else. So I've had that conversation with them as well. And I think sometimes it just opens their eyes to, wait, there's another medication I could try and maybe that one will work better. Well, you know, one of the things about using medication when you're a pediatrician and when we're taught this in medical school, be really comfortable with the medications you use. So when I look at how many ADD medications are out there on the market, when I first started in psychiatry in the early 1980s, there were not many possibilities on the market. The long-acting versions were not really very good. They were a wax-based matrix that would be absorbed sporadically. So we didn't have as many choices. Now there are a lot of choices, and there's a Mm -hmm. lot of different ways you can take medication as a tablet, as a capsule, as a chewable, as a liquid, even as a skin patch. So I don't think that pediatricians are going to have the breadth of knowledge of what variations there are out there, at least that's what I've seen. But they're going to be comfortable with the ones that are straightforward. And that's fine. I think that's a good public health resource. By the time they're getting to you folks as an educational therapist, they can have other specific learning issues. And one of the things that I find sometimes is, and you know, I've done this for many years now, if I'm finding that I'm using the standard medications, I'm going up on doses, it doesn't seem to be working, I'm going to ask for some testing. Because mm-hmm. sometimes what I have found is it's not just ADD. There is a learning disability that's been buried in there or a processing speed issue. So mm-hmm. just the medication is not necessarily going to answer all of those issues that sometimes are buried. It's so true. And Smarties, Dr. Newman just mentioned processing speed and episode 63 with Dr. Ellen Bratton is about processing speed. So go back and listen to that if you have questions about what she's talking about. And we should shout out the Karen Wilson episode about the testing. And episode 61 with Dr. Karen Wilson about neuropsychological testing. 
So we find in our practices that I'll just like give a little bit of a narrative about what could happen at my practice that a parent will call the kid has ADHD. They don't want to medicate and they want to see how far a therapy can take them. And I'm actually fine with that because I believe it provides credibility on the tail end of that whole journey for me to say, look, we agreed two months ago to wait on this. I've taken them as far as I know that I'm going to be able to. And why wouldn't we make it a little bit easier for them by at least trying the medication? And as an aside, the parent has to have the executive functioning skills to be able to have that relationship with the doctor, go get the medication filled, follow along for side effects, communicate with you about what they're observing. And not every parent is able to do that. So it has to be the right circumstances. But then you get the kid there and the kid's resistant to the medication. They don't like the way it makes them feel, which means it's probably not the right med for them. And they don't want to have to take medicine. They have a huge bias against the medicine. How do you handle that when that comes up for you? Well, I'm not going to be able to convince everybody to give it a try. But if I'm meeting with a parent, one of the ways that I find is the most effective is to bring out the white matter information and say, this is what the medication can do, looking at brain scans. And I can also share anecdotes. You know, I've had kids where they've improved in their testing by two academic years. Hmm. They'll come in at a reading level of, tell them whatever the reading level is, and they improve in a year by at least two years. So it really can be a big boost to the kids feeling of their own self-esteem and achievement Mm -hmm. because kids, Mm -hmm. they look around and they say, it doesn't matter what you call the reading group. You can call them the Robins, the Bluebirds or the Pigeons. They know. They know who the kids are that are the most competent and competency in childhood is really related to how you feel about yourself. The kids that are having more and more academic troubles, they become more and more oppositional. That was another reason why I decided with my youngest that it was time to start medication because she was starting to become oppositional about her schoolwork. And then it became the fight. And that is always unpleasant. We see a lot of that. That's when we get a call. And we sit there and say, you know, our job is to help your relationship by taking that off your plate because it affects so much more in the family's dynamic if you're having opposition about homework and daily struggles that you don't need to necessarily be involved in as the parent if you have access or work with an educational therapist. One of the issues that I will frequently hear from parents is, I don't want my child to be dependent on medication. Yep. That's the common one. And my response to that is, if you had a child who needed hearing aids, are they dependent on hearing aids? They can read lips, but it's sure a lot easier in the world if you can hear Same thing with glasses. Mm -hmm. You can still see the board. Maybe you're squinting. Maybe you're walking really close. Maybe you can't read the fine print. Are you dependent on your glasses? Well, sure makes your life easier. So using what's available to make your life easier is, I think, something that's really beneficial. That's what I say to the parents. Most of the time, people will buy that. They'll find that helpful. It really is. And also I say, you know, the child's brain is continuing to develop. I think Dan Siegel used the analogy. He's a psychiatrist, child psychiatrist over at UCLA. Dan used the analogy, if you think of our emotional center as the kitchen, the hub, and I'm going to apologize to Dan if I totally butcher his metaphor, but the remodeling of the house is up on the second floor. Kids often, and we use the emotional center, the center of the brain to make our sometimes our decisions, growing that second floor. And our brains do not finish developing and they keep remolding until probably around 25 for women, 30 for men. So I see a huge difference from a child who is seven to when they are 12. You know, the 12-year-old may say, I don't want to be dependent on it. They're trying to be independent themselves, taking a medication. It feels like they're less independent. 17, I don't need it anymore. And sometimes I'll get calls from the kids when they're in college. Yes. So I decided I needed to take it. Schoolwork isn't going as well as I thought it would go. Mm-hmm. I think I need it for my exams. And I've seen kids go through professional schools 
then into their professional working worlds, the kids that I saw when they were little to the kids that I see when they're now in their 30s, and deciding where medication fits for them. That's an individual decision. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's fair. I think taking it from a perspective of letting them try if they do want to stop and seeing what it's like and letting them come back to it on their own is important. Yeah, I have not found that forcing a kid to take it is ever going to work. Yeah. It's different than a vaccine where it's really life-threatening. Although when I say to parents, and, and I say this to kids too, when you're driving, when you're an adolescent, and there's pediatric literature that says kids who are inattentive are going to have more car accidents. So if you're not taking your medication and you're a teenager, you need to know that that's a risk, and parents need to know that. I just want to say I've observed this in my practice. Yes, you have. The amount of car accidents that certain clients have gotten into within months of getting their license is very alarming. Well, it's kind of typical for new drivers, but especially the impulsive kids. Yes. You know, impulsive kids, they're inattentive. Not all kids who have ADD need to take their medication when they're driving, but they do need to know that that has an impact, and that's in the literature. If I didn't say that, I think that would be malpractice. Fascinating. I didn't even think about the driving. Yeah. The other thing that, you know, the hesitations that I hear from parents, the dependency, they're going to be dependent, uh, drug abuse. It's a gateway. Yeah. You know, fortunately in my practice, I have not had patients that have diverted their medication generally and taken too much of it. It's very rare because what the medication does for them, especially the long acting ones now, you know, the long-acting medications have a slow-on, slow-off. That's the ideal. When we look at kids who have substance abuse troubles, they are not looking to feel more normal. They are looking to feel different. And that's generally, they want to feel different immediately. They want to rush. Mm-hmm. Well, these long-acting medications don't give a rush. And it makes them feel calmer as well. So kids generally don't want to feel calmer. Isn't there research also out there saying that when you have unmedicated ADHD that they do turn to different types of drugs to regulate in that way? Yeah, there's a lot of research about drug abuse in the ADD population. ADD kids tend not to do as well academically as their siblings or their peers. So you have kids that aren't feeling as good about themselves. How else are they going to feel good about themselves? And then you have the peer pressure, and they're more impulsive. So yes, there is a higher risk in general for kids who have ADHD going into using illicit substances than you do for the general population. But often they're not looking to just feel normal. That's not what a drug-seeking adolescent is looking for. It's a good distinction between the two. And I wanted you to just note, because I've had this come up in my practice quite a bit, actually, where parents have said something about how their child is on such a high dose or on such a low dose of a certain medication. And I know this, but just from a medical professional about how dosage isn't age or weight dependent just having you speak on that for a second, because there's been several times where I've had calls where they're saying, well, the ADHD is just minor. They're on a low dose. I think you're bringing up several different issues in that. Stephanie, one is my child doesn't have that severe a problem. They're minimally impacted. Okay. So that's one issue. No parent wants to have their child have a major problem. They're minimally impacted. Second is what is the dosing? Well, there is actually some suggestions about what dosing is. When I was training, we used numbers of 0.3 milligrams per kilogram per dose on Ritalin, methylphenidate, up to one milligram per kilogram per dose. So we were actually taught, this was 30 years ago, to dose by milligrams. What I generally tend to do is start with the lowest dose that I think is going to be effective. You know, if I've got a child who's 150 pounds, I don't think I'm going to go with the lowest dose of Vyvanse. I might. Then you step it up. Like, mm-hmm. got so many variations now of what's out there on the market to, to use and to try. And I tell parents that kids' brains do not read the diagnostic statistical manual. They are what they are. They mm-hmm. have not read 
the pharmacy notes. They are what they are. Yes. We use what we think is going to be useful and then test it out for their individual child. Yeah. And the parent has to know that testing it out and not just looking for the symptoms that might come up that you're telling them about, you know, when they start talking really fast or they can't sleep or they're not eating and paying attention to those is important if you're medicating your child for sure. Oh, absolutely. And I generally will suggest to parents that we start a medication on a weekend, even though they're not in school. So the parent has a chance to see what their child is like. So I want to see that their mood's okay. Yes, eating is going to be often impacted and that's a problem. Sometimes I'll end up using short-acting medications because of that so that I can get meal times. But generally, that's not the reason that kids are going to end up stopping the medication. Usually, we can do a workaround. Mm-hmm. And sleeping, most of the time, the medications, first couple of doses, it may impact sleep, but often, most of the time, it doesn't. 30% of kids are going to have an anxiety disorder who have ADD. When somebody's having trouble sleeping, I want to know why they're having the trouble sleeping. Sometimes it's not just that they took an afternoon dose of medication, which there are studies. If you take a dose of stimulants at around 4 o'clock, they've done studies in hospitals looking at, then when do the kids fall asleep? There was an inpatient hospital study that looked at this years ago, and the kids may have stayed up by about 30 minutes longer. That's not a whole lot, but Mm -hmm. 30 minutes. What I find generally the kids who can't sleep, either they're the ADD kids whose brains, they really have a hard time turning off their brain, no matter if they take meds or they don't take meds. And the other piece is anxiety. You know, 30% of these kids are going to have some anxiety disorder. So at night, they're trying to get to sleep. They're anxious. They may be thinking, hey, what am I going to do the next day? So it can be confounding with the medication. So it's not so straightforward that it's only the medication. Yeah. And I think it's very easy to just label it as that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, it's easier to control. If it is the medication, then we can exert some influence over it as opposed to if it's anxiety and concern and all that, it's a little more complicated and in-depth response. Right. And the other thing is often when kids are taking afternoon, let's say high school kids, if they're taking their medication in the afternoon for their homework... Sometimes those kids will decide to take it on nights that they have a lot of homework or they have a test. They're already anxious. Yeah. That's why they've decided to take it that day. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's a lot of different levels that could be going on that you don't even realize or take into account. Mm-hmm. Okay. And can you tell us about your thoughtful parenting? Oh, thoughtful parenting. Someday I'm going to write a book, but I'm not a good writer. So it's better for me to be on a podcast. <laughs> oh, you could get a ghost writer, Dr. Oh, Newman. Oh, ghost writer. Okay. You get a ghost writer and then you come back on the podcast in our author series ah, all right. and you talk about the book a little bit more. That's but right. And then I sell the book. So I've coined a couple of phrases over the years. Thoughtful parenting is a phrase that I've coined because I've had to use it when I've been a parent. Thoughtful parenting. It means that you're already thinking about what you want the outcome of the interaction to be before you start the interaction. Starting with the end in mind. Yes. What's my intention in this? Where do I think it's going to go? And how do I want to start it off? So uh, David Miklowitz, who is a psychologist over at UCLA, who runs the mood disorder program for children and adolescents, described that in his teaching parents for kids who have mood disorders, the bipolar kids who are incredibly irritable, he teaches the parents, which is the same kind of idea that I had But he was able to actually show in research that if they don't increase their emotional pitch to where the kid's emotional pitch is, that he can delay relapse. And Dr. Miklowitz, if I am saying this incorrectly, you'll have to come on as the expert to correct (laughs) me. But he has actually shown that he can delay a relapse of a mood disorder by a significant number of months. Hmm. So that's my... A scientific basis for what I have found works for kids and, and teenagers is if the kid is already reactive, starting and reacting with them is not going to get anybody anywhere. Mm-mm. So there is an emotional regulation kind of guideline that I use. Uh, I haven't invented this, but I did put something in this from one of the children in my practice who taught me a new color zone. It's green, yellow, orange, red, and then blue. 
So green is when we're calm. Yellow is when we're starting to get agitated. Orange is we're building up that ramp. Red is when the volcano blows. And then blue, one of my child patients said, that's how you feel afterwards after you've had a temper tantrum. You feel sad, mm. which I really liked. So with parents, we know there's going to be a lot of emotion because the kid is generating the emotion. I like to teach them this green, yellow, orange, red, blue kind of color zones and say, where are you when you're starting your interaction with your kid? You know, when a child is irritable and blaming, you can't help but get angry and want to defend yourself and blame them back. There's a lovely book that was written years ago that I think is still in print by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslish, if you two know that book, How to Talk So Your Kids Will Listen, How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. Yes, I've read it. Yes. Beautiful little book. It's worth reading. And every so often I pick it up and reread it. We'll link it in the show notes. And I reread it because I slip. You know, a typical process interaction is going to be if somebody blames you, you defend yourself and you blame them back. And so you get a volleyball game going where you're spiking the ball at each other. It doesn't work very well to get what you want to have done. So, in my idea of thoughtful parenting, it's Okay, if you know that's who your kid is, how do you enter into the interaction knowing that you're going to have to watch your own color zones and kind of identify with the kids where their color zone is? Can we role play this for a second? Mm -hmm. So let's say a kid lied to their parent and the parent caught them. What would you say that the parent go into it with the intentionality? What would you suggest? So there's a couple of ideas I've got on this. And I also want to mention Ross Green, your explosive child and Ross Green, who is a psychologist who had run a behavioral modification program. One of the East Coast schools, I don't remember where, wrote some books, for, especially for providers of how to help explosive children. Mm-hmm. I remember one little girl in my practice once saw that book on my bookcase and said, Dr. Newman, I think I should read this because I think it would help me. It was Hmm. how to work with explosive kids. So lying, boy, that's a common one, right? I Mm -hmm. say to parents, that must be one you see all the time about homework. So Mm -hmm. typically what I see when I've got kids who lie, and boy, I've seen people take it to a pretty far extreme. Uh, The most extreme was, um, I've seen it a couple of times where kids say they're going to be graduating from a particular institution and they have stopped going to class for the graduation. That's a pretty big extreme. So the little ones are the homeworks. You know, I did my homework. I studied for that test. I turned it in. Where the kids didn't. Often what I find when I talk to the kids is their hope is they're going to fix it before the parents ever find out. They're not purposely trying to totally lie. They're trying to buy some time. And they're trying to buy a lack of reaction from the parents. So. An example, kid doesn't do their homework. The kid says to the parents, I've done my homework. And then the parent gets a note, they haven't done their homework. Of course, the parent's going to feel angry. But that generally doesn't get the kid to do their homework. Actually, one of my sons who was in this phase for a while in ninth grade said, you know, you can lock me in a room with a book. If I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. It's true. Yeah. So I find you have to have the kids want to do it more than the parents want them to do it. So younger kids, they want their parents' approval. So you've still got that going for you. This is before they're in early adolescence. Starting in adolescence, when it starts getting into, I don't want people to tell me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. They're lying. They have a different reason than it did when they're littler kids. So I say to parents, look, we've got the Fifth Amendment as the way our court system works, where kids do not want to have to testify against themselves which means they don't want to have to say, I lied, I didn't do my homework. They often want to find a face-saving way out. So that's the way I approach it with the lies. So I say, you know, it's disappointing that you lied about your homework. You know, we end up finding out anyway. It's a whole lot easier if we start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You're telling us because now we're not going to trust anything that you say and do. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to have to build up trust. So what I say to the kids is, you know, your parents aren't going to trust anything that you're doing. They're going to watch everything now. That doesn't feel so good. So as you show responsibility, you get more freedom. Yeah. 
if you don't show responsibility, you're not going to get freedom. This is often the thing that we're doing in practice too, right? We're talking about this with the kid, how to get the parents off the kid's back because that's what the kids ultimately want. They want the independence and to be able to do it, but oftentimes they aren't ready for it. Right. So the analogy that I use, which was borrowed from one of my supervisors when I was a learning how to be a psychiatrist, Ken Silvers, who was one of the most gentle, wonderful psychiatrists out there. He passed away maybe five years ago. What Ken said is that, and this is what he would say to the kids, and this is what I have borrowed from him, is that your parents are there to be the police. They don't want to have to step in to be the police. When you're driving, if you're driving your car and you stop at the stop sign, the police aren't going to stop you. You're doing what you're supposed to do. But if you don't, the police are there to stop you. Your parents are there to help you. They're the policemen. But what you really want to gain and grow during the time that you're a kid to the time you grow up is how you're going to manage your own impulse control. And this is a big one that I say to the parents. They've got to manage their own impulse control. Mm -hmm. That's what they've got to learn by the time they're out of the house. Because the parents that end up micromanaging homework throughout their kids' adolescence, Mm -hmm. first of all, by high school, they're not going to be able to anymore. It's true. And we see that. If they go off to college, the ones that have had the most scaffolding, if they haven't learned how to build it, they're home by their second or third semester because they flunked out. So I say to the parents, look, as hard as this is now, you're trying to avoid where the record becomes more permanent. It's so true. I had a client like this and I was having this exact conversation. So I totally understand. So I think that's good. And I think there's definitely some importance in understanding where your child is coming at and looking at the long game rather than the short game for sure. Right. So my anecdotes on this, when my two younger daughters were about three, four, five, right around that age, I went to Rite Aid, where you know those little pink balls that they have at eye level in the children's section. Mm-hmm. They are right at eye level for a four-year-old who's going to want to get that ball. And my little older youngest daughter said, I'd like that ball. And I said, no, we didn't come to Rite Aid today to get that ball. She said, I really want it. I said, not today. And she said, how about for my next birthday? She had no idea when her birthday was. I said, oh, that's great. Okay. Yes. Next birthday. Good. Let's leave the store. We'll come back. Easy peasy. Her younger sister, same thing. Actually, the same vignette. Here's the pink ball. I want that pink ball. And I said, no, we're not doing it. Same, same script. Mm-hmm. Only her script wasn't what her sister's script was. Her script was, I want that ball right now. And I said, mm-hmm. well, she didn't say it for my next birthday. So I said, well, how about for your birthday? She said, No. I want it now, and if you don't get it for me now, I'm going to throw myself on the floor. I'm going to kick and scream. Mm-hmm. Same parent, same idea of how to handle it. So, of course, that one I had to pick up and take her out because she obviously didn't have the impulse control. It's important to note that children growing up in the same home with the same parents are having different experiences, and you know their impulse control can differ greatly. That's right. And so collaborative problem solving, whenever you can do it, and that's that I'm borrowing from Ross Green, is figuring out what the problem is when you're all in the green zone, not in the orange-red zone or blue zone, but when you're all calm enough to say, here's the problem, what can we do about it? So, uh, you know, five kids, I've had lots of different home experiences with this. My older son, when his grades started to decline, and he's a very smart, capable student, I said, look, I'm seeing your grades are declining. What do you think you should do? And he knew the script. He said, well, I think I should unplug whatever the game system was and put it under your bed until after the semester. Whoa, that's great. Great idea. That's easy, right? Makes me look like an A-plus parent. His brother, same thing, decided he wasn't going to do schoolwork for teachers that either he didn't respect or classes he wasn't interested in. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of high school. So his ninth grade year did not look very successful. When he took his own report card and posted it on his computer where he didn't do well, I knew that he actually was caring about it. And I said, you know, let's bring in, we have the funds, let's bring in a tutor to help you out. He said, I don't want to work with a tutor. Again, this is collaborative, right? So I said, well, I know you don't want to, but it'll help me be off your back if I know that somebody's coming in even once a week to work with you. And that helped. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I want to get used to the idea that he may not go to a four-year college right out of high school. Mm-hmm. He may not be able to do it. He may not have the maturity to do it. But by his sophomore year, he then went up to his teacher. I went to a back-to-school night, and his teacher said to him, what do you think you can do to improve? This was a biology class. He said, I think I could read the book. I said, wow, read the book? You mean you haven't been reading your biology book? By the end of that year, he went to the teacher and said, I realized I did the wrong thing. I'd still like to take honors biology if I can get into it. And we have this conversation, the teacher and I, should he have the chance to take an honors biology class if he didn't do enough of the work the year before? I said, let's give him a chance. So, you know, different kids, you try to figure out the collaborative problem solving with as little expressed intense emotion as you can. Yeah, makes sense. That's the thoughtful part. Yeah, I like it. I think that's good. And I think that's a good reminder for the parents who are really struggling in the moment to sometimes just take a step back and figure it out. That Not everyone has the answer all the time. And every child is different. Those are the big takeaways. Right. And Stephanie, we also have a lot of makeup time. In our system, we don't get tested and then get put into a degree program like in a European system. Right. You know, we have a chance for kids to mature and learn those study skills when they're not facing also trying to figure out how to be independent at a four-year school. I'm making a pitch for the community college system. Mm-hmm. With my last daughter, she was not doing her college application process. I, you know, I was finding myself arguing with her and I said, you know, she can't do it. She's not ready to go. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. I think that's really, really important to note because I think that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well. You know, she's filling it out and she ended up going and she was fine. But as a parent, I think a lot of parenting is about what are your own expectations? What are your desires and wishes? How do you want your kids to end up being long term? Not just what you're hoping in 10th grade or 11th grade. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your wisdom and many years of experience. Yeah. And just breaking it down in a way that's really, really thoughtful in general. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, Smarties, for listening. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. So Steph, you were the one that knew Dr. Newman prior to this episode. You were the one who said that we had to have her on. Mm Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you've known her for a really long time. I actually have known her for a really long time. And I think I met her around 2013. Maybe it was a little earlier. And she's one of the ones that helped me professionally guide me towards opening my own practice. And just her professional opinions were super helpful in my life. So I really appreciated being able to know her and have her as a sounding board for me back in the day. I was around during this time that you were making some transitions in career changes because I remember conversations that you had with her that you shared with me. So it was nice to be able to put a name and a face together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah. I love that we're able to have people who have inspired our journey in some way on the podcast. It's a really cool part of this. She's just one of those good, calm sounding boards. So yeah. So what were your key takeaways? Well, One of the things that I wrote down was that pediatricians are an appropriate first step for garden variety ADHD. Yeah. That was good for us to hear because you and I default to go to a specialist. But I do think it's like almost confirmation bias because most of the kids that we see in our practice do not necessarily have garden variety ADHD. Correct. So when we hear that those complex cases are going to the pediatrician, the nuance and the specificity of it and the layeredness mm-hmm. of it that's why I think you and I are like no no you got to go to a psychiatrist right but it makes sense I mean there's a few garden variety cases in my practice but the majority are not so I think if we're opening that conversation about medication I think it's important when it is a more complicated case and there's some more things going on than just the ADHD, that it is confirmation that it's important to go to a specialist. Yeah. What was something that you walked away from that episode thinking that was powerful? One of the things that you and I talk about all the time is the way she said it, trying to avoid where the record becomes permanent. Yes. 
that's going to be the name of the email that comes out alongside this episode. I like it. You know, because you and I have had this conversation a lot. We've talked about it on the podcast that natural consequences are important and they're important to teach sooner than later. So not doing well in ninth grade is going to have a completely different consequence than failing out of college. Exactly. And sometimes it's so hard to remember that. I was actually having a conversation with a parent last week about whether or not to put a child on a fast math track in Mm -hmm. seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And mom really wanted to do it. And the school was not for it. And we had a chat about it. And I said, you know, he doesn't want it. The the student doesn't Mm -hmm. want it. And so I think that Mm -hmm. if he did, we'd be having a different conversation. So did the mom acquiesce? Yeah. So we decided it was best to just drop it. And because if he decides to pick it back up down the line and take an extra class, he'll want to. And he'll be ready for it. That'll be okay, right? And some of the four years that require the track might not be a good fit for him anyway. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's important. That was a big takeaway when she was talking about another way of saying trying to avoid where the record becomes more permanent is – being okay with little failures earlier in the journey mm-hmm. so we don't have these big things that follow us around forever. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's okay if you don't do well in a class in ninth grade. It's okay. Or eighth grade. I have one parent in my practice, and I know I've spoken to you off air about her before, and she's very bombastic, and everything's a disaster. If it's not an A, it's a disaster. Mm. And we're in summer now. I know what his grades were at the end of our – we've been working together probably about a year. And there were some A minuses, but it was mostly A's and one B plus. And she sent me this long, loving email about it. And I was like, you know what I think is the bigger victory? I think the bigger victory is that your kid keeps a calendar, that he knows when stuff is happening, that he's learned the consequences to taking his foot off the gas – and he's learned how to rebound. Like I listed all these other non-quantitative. Mm, not grade related. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we should do an episode on this at some point. The quantitative versus the qualitative. You and I tend to look at the qualitative victories. Yeah. And place a lot of importance on those. And at the end of the day, the only quantitative analysis we have are these grades. Yeah. I was sort of thinking of comparing it to your height. Right. At the end of the day, like you're going to become the height you're going to become, but you don't start from being, you know, 20 inches when you're born and end up six feet. You've got to like have these milestones and hit these things as you grow up to be whatever you end up growing up to be. I like the analogy. Here's where I think the analogy fails. Mm -hmm. We don't really have any control over our height. Right. And To a certain extent, I think the universe guides us to what we are supposed to be doing and puts us in the right zone and our natural affinities are going to guide us there. But we do have control over learning skills and strategies that are going to help us along the way. But I like the overall analogy because I think it's calming. It's more about beginning and ending than, you know, control over something. Yes. All right, Smarties, thanks so much for joining us today. We'd love to see you in the Facebook group and see what's going on and how your summer is going with your students and your learners. And we'd love to start a conversation about going back to school next month. So we'd love for you to post in there and uh, we'll see you there. Have a great week. Have a great week, Smarties.